0: Murphy Law in Skip 7043, The Montauk Falcon One of the most unique and interesting aspects of the SCP universe is in its narrative flexibility. One story can feature extensive amounts of cosmic horror or body horror, while the next could be a comedy or a heart-wrenching tale. One article could be set in the deepest reaches of space, while another could take place thousands of years ago. SCP-3043 was a particularly unique one, as it brought in a very specific theme, that being film noir, and the character of Murphy Law, a hard-boiled private eye. What was interesting was that it wasn't just an SCP tale with a noir style, but Murphy is actually a pataphysical construct that adheres to a noir style, with others in the present day forced to interact with him in such a manner. In 3043, Murphy managed to take out a hostile typewriter that could rewrite any physical document within its immediate vicinity, as well as apparently change people's thoughts. Now, Murphy is back, in his biggest and most dangerous adventure yet. Let's begin. The article begins with a call log between a member of Site-19's documentation department, Robinson, and the new site director, O'Leary. Robinson calls to congratulate O'Leary on his promotion, saying that the department here is rooting for him and he can't be any more of a pain than Director August. O'Leary thanks him and says that settling in has been a mess, especially with the power outage yesterday. Apparently the security footage for the entire day yesterday, the 6th, is gone, although Robinson thought that today was the 6th, chalking it up to having one too many drinks last night. The other thing Robinson wanted to talk about was a new SCP that came in out of the Investigation Department, slot 7043. O'Leary is surprised that that slot wasn't already filled, but Robinson says that he thinks something was there and it just got moved. He finished the description for it and was about to scan the single addendum document when he looked over and noticed the page had just filled itself in with addendums. O'Leary takes this to mean that he used an AI to do it, but Robinson says that he wasn't using an AI because he hates them. He ran the addendums through the search, and there were a few things in there above his clearance level, but he doesn't know what to make of them. He proceeded to cut them out so he could finish, but he kept them in a separate document just in case. O'Leary asks to confirm that they just appeared there, to which Robinson says that they did, out of thin air. He didn't really look over them in case there's a brain hazard or something, but from the couple of glances he took, He didn't recognize the formatting. This piques O'Leary's interest, so he asks Robinson to send them over so he can run them through the folks in Infohazards before looking at them. Robinson asks if he wants them emailed or faxed over, causing O'Leary to chuckle, as the documentation department is the only place that still has a fax machine. Robinson says that it's still the best way to send a sheet of paper, but he agrees to email them over. O'Leary asks if there's anything else, to which Robinson responds by asking, why the whole building smells like cigarettes and gas station liquor. With that, let's look at these new documents that appeared out of nowhere. Fade in. Exterior. Mojave Desert. Day. A black 1968 GT Mustang rolls across the dry, cracked landscape. In it are two passengers, both obscured by the distance and the blowing sand. A pair of cotton gloves flips a coin in the air. This is passenger one. The coin lands in the palm of a glove, heads. The coin is flipped again, then again, landing heads each time. A pair of hands can be seen holding the wheel of the vehicle, Passenger 2, placing Passenger 1 in the passenger seat. The Mojave Desert passes by in the windshield, blowing sand against the car. Passenger 1 raises a gloved hand, and the car comes to a stop. Both people exit the vehicle, the gloved hands coming to Passenger 1's sides. There is a 44 Magnum at Passenger 1's hip, sitting in a holster on their belt. A dark leather overcoat covers most of Passenger One's body. The 44 Magnum is raised, and the cylinder is opened, revealing six empty chambers. Passenger One loads a single round into a chamber, then spins the cylinder. There's the crack of a gunshot, and Passenger Two falls on their back, hands at their side. The sound of footsteps fades into the distance as blood pools around Passenger Two. Fade Out Fade In Interior, Murphy Law Detective Agency Day The hands of a light-skinned man pour a drink of scotch into a shot glass. He lifts the needle of a record player onto a record, then sits back in the chair at his desk, setting the glass of scotch down. He wears a white-collared shirt and tan, suspended dress pants, a trademark Trilby hat placed loosely on his head. We can see his own 44 sitting loosely in the shoulder-strapped holster. He lifts a cigarette from his mouth and reaches for the newspaper on his desk, sending a puff of smoke into the air. This is Murphy, and he's ready to give anyone a bit of the business. He's hard and handsome with a face you could hit with a wrecking ball and bring out unscathed. The slight wrinkling and dark circles show his age and experience in his harsh, unforgiving line of work. He is also our narrator. His voice is a rough growl, as if he just runs sandpaper over his vocal cords and cleaned the cuts with rubbing alcohol. There are things in this world most folks just don't have the stomach for. In my work, you get a good helping of it all. Bad people. worse lives. These days, everyone's got something to hide. Us people keep falling deeper into that black pit, filled with death, murder, lizards hell-bent on your destruction. The door to the office opens quietly. A pale, red-headed man in a work suit and a driver's cap walks through the door. He's perpetually twenty, with a face covered with freckles, like the blood spatter of a slash across the neck. This is Fred, the silent observer, a man in the shadows and yet so unlike the darkness in the office. Sometimes, even surprises. I come in here every day. It shouldn't be that surprising anymore drinking alone at 11 a.m. again, Murph. Fred sits in a chair across from Murphy, watching as he raises the glass to his lips. Someone has to. For all the bad in the world, Fred is a little too much good. Good man, good company, hiding nothing. But good company doesn't mean so much these days. The world will just keep spiraling, Good or bad. Right. Well, I'm here to bring in your mail again. Looks like it's still all ads and bills. Fred tosses a stack of papers onto Murphy's desk. You get any new cases yet? No. Trouble's still out there. Calling my name. Look, Murphy, I'm sorry, but how do you know that anymore? You haven't had a case since 2018, and that was a side gig, if anything. Before that, your last real case was, what, 17 years ago? Murphy groans, then looks down into the swirling liquid in the glass in his hands. He sees the professor running into his office. He sees a 1937 Olympia Elite typewriter with three bullet holes sitting on her desk. He sees Dr. Thawm sitting across from him in an interview room, attempting to snuff him out. He sees the remnants of an android scattered about the sidewalk of the city, sparking in the rain. The memories fade from the glass, and he looks up. I know because you're here. Wherever you are, trouble comes along. Never part of it, but always there. I mean, Fred looks down at himself, lost in contemplation. I'm just concerned, Murphy, as a friend should be. Your lease for this place is up soon, and I'm worried you can't keep paying it. Money keeps the world spinning, but it can't buy you justice. The world can keep spinning without that. Maybe the world doesn't need a Murphy Law anymore. That's not what I said. Whatever, Murph. Maybe you're right. Something really will come knocking, seeing as I'm here. Fred stands from the desk and walks to the door. All I'm saying is, you should look into a change of career. Join the police, maybe. I just got a job as a limo driver. Maybe that's your calling. You can still drive around the city and brood about the filth or something that way. Murphy looks up at Fred from the seat behind his desk. He watches him intently, then Fred opens the door. Fred? Yeah, Murphy? Murphy stares at him, waiting to say just the right thing, the point that proves him wrong. But it doesn't come. Goodbye, Fred. Fred smiles lightly. See you tomorrow, Murph. Fade out. Fade in. Interior, Murphy Law Detective Agency. Night. Murphy is asleep in his chair, feet up on his desk. The position is uncomfortable, but he doesn't need comfort. There's a sudden knock at the door, causing Murphy to slowly open his eyes. He draws his piece, aiming it squarely at the door. A letter slides under the door. Murphy sits up, looking at it. My lucky day. Murphy walks over to the door and picks up the letter. On the front is the words, For Mr. Lawden. Murphy scowls, then flips the letter over. It was the one thing I needed most. The trouble that had been looking for me. It was the inevitability of all things. The bane and purpose of my existence. It was... Zoom in on the wax seal on the back. Camera focuses to reveal the logo of the SCP Foundation stamped into the wax. A case. Murphy Law, in Skip 7043, The Montauk Falcon. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior, Mojave Desert, night. Murphy's car drives down the shambles of a paved road, headlights piercing the inky blackness of night. Murphy's hands clenched the steering wheel. The foundation was trouble incarnate. They always had almost everything under control, even the things you didn't know you needed to worry about. They had an ace up their sleeve for nearly every hand that could be dealt— Murphy's car screeches to a halt. The headlights illuminate a woman standing in the road, her vehicle sitting behind her. She wears a modestly luxurious red coat, the fur of an animal surrounding her neck. She's no older than forty-five, and she speaks with a hint of German to her accent. This is thirteen, and thanks to her status as the top of the top in the foundation, her commanding presence needs no introduction. Murphy steps out of the car. The Foundation knew the flop before the dealer even flipped the cards. Thirteen opens the door to her vehicle. Hello, Mr. Lawden. Please step into the car. Murphy grimaces at the name. The only group of people despicable enough to call me that name was the O5 Council and those pencil-pushing pedophysics people. AND SHE DIDN'T LOOK LIKE A PENCIL PUSHER. MY CAR WORKS JUST FINE, TOOTS. YOU NEED TO SWAP VEHICLES TO BETTER APPEAR AS MY PARTNER. LOCAL AUTHORITIES ALREADY OPEN AN INVESTIGATION. YOU'LL BE POSING AS A MEMBER OF THE FBI, ALONG WITH MYSELF. YOU CERTAINLY DIDN'T DRESS THE PART. THIRTEEN OPENS THE TRUNK OF THE CAR AND REMOVES AN FBI UNIFORM. She takes off her coat and puts the uniform on, then removes a second uniform and holds it out for Murphy. He looks at it, then up at her. I'm already in my uniform. Murphy flips up the collar on his leather overcoat. Thirteen frowns. Whatever you need to work, I suppose. You're out of my jurisdiction, but I need help here. Whatever I can do to accommodate you, within reason, let me know. Now please, get in the car. Murphy steps into 13's vehicle, sitting in the passenger seat. Thirteen sits in the driver's, and the car maneuvers back onto the road and drives off. But for all the quad aces there were to draw, all the card counting and manipulation, the Foundation always faced the threat of a royal flush. All you can do then is keep the winner from cashing out. They don't call a guy like me to the Vegas deserts unless they see the nail come into the coffin. I'm sure you understand from my letter the sensitivity of this case. I'm concerned I can't even let my peers know I'm investigating. The car slows to a stop twenty feet from a wrapping of bright yellow police tape. It's a grisly yet clean scene. A single vehicle within the tape and the victim, passenger two, still on his back, blood pooled up around his torso from a stream in his head. The top half of the body lays off the road, covered in dust from the surrounding desert. The area is swarmed with police, their red and blue lights flashing in the distance and splashing over the area like light through flavored syrup bottles. Murphy pulls the yellow tape over his head and kneels over the body a couple of officers run over to him but 13 stops them before they can say anything 13 pulls a badge from the pocket of her uniform FBI he's with me we're commandeering this investigation please step away we sent for a hearse to haul him off to the coroner a couple of detectives from the station would you like us to call it all off go home for the night we'll let you know if we need anything Alright. I guess he's someone of interest then? Yes, and that's more than you need to know. The officers leave. Murphy runs his hands over Passenger 2's cold cheeks as vehicles drive off, the red and blue lights leaving with them. Eats leaving the body. Nothing but the sun for warmth out here, and the feathers of buzzards. Cold body, colder act. You are getting fingerprints on my body. Murphy pulls his leather gloves from his coat pocket and puts them on. He turns over Passenger 2's arms, then his legs, then inspects his neck. No struggle. Murphy reaches into the pockets of Passenger 2's pants and finds nothing. He stands, then opens the door to the vehicle. Smells of vinegar. Murphy runs his gloved hands along the driver's seat and inspects them, then the steering wheel. Entire vehicle's been cleaned and disinfected. No fingerprints. No DNA. Whoever killed him wanted him more than dead. They wanted him dead and gone. Murphy opens the glove box and finds nothing. He shifts over to the passenger side and opens the pocket. No registration or insurance papers. Nothing up here, except for this. Inside the pocket sits a small ball cap, the logo of Sasha's Cleaning Products ironed into the front. Murphy pulls it out and turns it over in his hands. Sasha's Cleaning Products. SCP. A front company of ours, set up a few miles west of here. Lucky they left that here. Not luck. You don't clean up this well and leave a mistake like this behind. I don't suppose the hat's the only reason I'm here. No. The reason you're here is because, as the thirteenth member of the O5 Council, I have to take threats to our members with the utmost seriousness. You're here because that—thirteen gestures to Passenger 2— the camera slowly zooming in to Passenger 2's face, is 057. Fade out. Fade in, exterior, Sasha's cleaning products, night. Murphy's car drives slowly down a village road, passing by shops and restaurants one by one. The streets are devoid of other life save for the occasional passing car and the streetlights shining by overhead. She had armed me with a special access card and a code phrase, although the steel at my hip was all I needed. Her concerns made sense now. The only person close enough to an O5 to have them whacked would be another O5. This narrowed me down to twelve possibilities. The big question is, why? Why? Murphy stops the car in front of a shop. He gets out and surveys the building. It's empty inside, a single counter surrounded by various cleaning implements, shelves of disinfectants and window cleaners, walls of vacuums and mops, and a display in the front advertising their personal cleaning services, all of which sit dormant in the dark building. Mounted at the top is a red sign with orange letters reading Sasha's Cleaning Products. Smaller lettering below it reads, Your Mess is Our Success. Murphy steps up to the door and pulls on the handle, but finds it locked. He sighs, then removes a pack of cigarettes and a Zippo lighter from his breast pocket. He places a cigarette between his lips and lights it, then puts the items back. He pulls a key card from the same pocket and looks at it. Inked in red are the words Level 3 Access. Next to the door is a card reader. He swipes the card and the reader blinks green. The door makes a small click before releasing the locking mechanism. Murphy pushes open the door and steps into the building, smoke wafting up from the cigarette. He steps up to the counter. Next to the register is a small silver bell, a sign stand next to it reading Ring for Service. He presses down on it, and the bell rings. After a moment or two, a man opens the door to a back room and comes to the front. He wears a purple shirt with the logo of Sasha's on the front. He looks tired, but he becomes alert on seeing Murphy. This is Attendant. I don't recognize you. You have two minutes to tell me who you are and how you got in here. Does the black moon howl? Attendant squints, then lifts up the divider in the counter, gesturing for Murphy to enter. Murphy steps behind the counter. Attendant opens the door to the back room and Murphy enters. Inside, the room is lit up by the glow of blinking lights and computer monitors. Desks and servers litter the room. In the back, a large array of screens stand looming over the room. They each display the video feed of a different camera within the village. What can I help you with? Has anything unusual happened around here recently? Nothing of note, no. Have any members of the O5 Council been through here in the last few days? O5 7 came by as a routine checkup night before last, but that isn't unusual. Does he do that often? Well, yes. He comes by bi-weekly. And you should know that. I'm no 05. I'm just with him. An involved party. Aha. Uh-huh. Attendant side-eyes Murphy as they speak, never losing suspicion. Did 057 do anything unusual? I don't know. I wasn't in. Hey, Jimmy. A man sleeping at a desk in the corner suddenly awakens, startled. This is Jimmy. What? I'm awake. I've been awake. Did 057 do anything off while he was here? Uh, yeah, yeah. He dropped off a body bag and then asked to see the order ledger. Show me the ledger and the body. I'll have to call downstairs to get the body, but I can print out the ledger for you in the meantime. Another body, but what's one amongst foundations? Dead people is not unusual for a society such as this one. The foundation breeds a different class of desensitivity. It's disgusting. Jimmy hands Murphy a couple sheets of paper, order logs for cleaning supplies from the last month. Murphy thumbs through them. Camera zooms on the names. Margaret Edmonds. Nolan Body. Kevin Alberstram. Nothing of note catches his eyes. That's funny. Storage says somebody checked the body back out. They didn't leave a name. Who is the body? Jimmy asks the same question over the phone. They were instructed not to open the bag, so they didn't. They said it made a whirring sound. I noticed that too, now that I'm remembering it. Any ideas where it came from? Jimmy again asks the same question over the phone. Well, the bag had Site 19 storage stenciled on. <clears> hmm. <throat> Murphy exits the building, tapping the ash off the end of his cigarette on his way out. Attendant turns to Jimmy and grabs his shoulder. Call the boss. Tell him to call his boss. Tell him there's a problem with 057. I'm going to run downstairs and get Site-19 on the line. Whoever that was, even if he had the code, I don't like the look of him. Jimmy picks up the phone again and begins calling someone. Attendant opens the door to the bathroom, revealing an elevator shaft behind the door. He presses a button and the lift rises to him. He steps in and the lift lowers. Stenciled onto the wall behind the lift are the words... Armed Site 21 access lift. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior, Site 19, morning. Murphy pulls his car up to a Site 19 perimeter security booth. He stops the car at the booth window just behind the gate. A security agent pokes his head out of the window. He's tired and monotone, but hardly careless. This is Security 1. Site-19 was the most sterile and lifeless place on Earth, but the life they kept here was nothing to sneeze at. One of the few places where the monsters will still roam and the broken have a home. Whatever was waiting for me in there, I couldn't possibly imagine. Facial recognition failed. Name and badge number? Does the black moon howl? Does what? I don't know what that means, sir. Name and badge number or turn around. Murphy hands the agent his loaned security badge. Name, sir. Murphy squints at the agent, as if trying to stare him down. I'm Murphy. Murphy Law. There's a loud buzz as Security One swipes the card and inputs the name into his computer. A small red light on the desk comes on. Excuse me for a moment. Security One picks up the phone in his booth and punches in a few numbers. He begins talking to someone in the background, staring back at Murphy as he does. These sites were just... beehives waiting to be kicked. Security One finally hangs up the phone, then sighs. He hands the card back to Murphy. Parking lot A, door 1. Murphy drives the car up to the lot and steps out, then approaches the door. He scans the ID card and steps inside. Another security agent stands in front of the door waiting to greet him. His tone is more warm, but he is much like the first in intention. This is Security 2. Hello, Mr. Law. I'm to escort you to your meeting. Murphy gives him a cold glare, then nods. Security 2 is unfazed. The two walk through the facility, passing by a myriad of locked doors and labeled rooms. Murphy takes a drag on his cigarette. Meeting. If I had a dollar for every arranged meeting I'd been to, I wouldn't be doing this job. If I had two for every meeting that turned out to be a trap, well, wouldn't I be lucky? Security 2 opens the door to an interview room. A middle-aged Chinese woman sits at the interview table, waiting patiently. She smiles at Murphy as he enters, and he recognizes her instantly. Age has done its reshaping, but it's still the same commanding presence. This is five, and if we told you any more about her, we'd have to kill you. Hello, Mr. Lawden. It's been quite a while, hasn't it? Murphy winces at the name again. He sits at the opposite end of the interview table, disgruntled. O55. 17 years. How have you been? Good spirits, I hope. <sighs> when Site 21 called us and warned that a man in a leather overcoat and a cigarette addiction would be coming by to investigate O57, I knew who it was right away. Murphy doesn't speak, but looks on in silence. So much for anonymity. Right, well, 57 didn't show for this morning's meeting. I assume at least that's what you're looking into. It's the most concerning thing there is around here and you did ask about him. Here, this is the last sighting of him as he left the facility yesterday. Five hands Murphy a stack of printouts, each a screenshot of security cam footage showing 057 leaving Site-19. Murphy inspects each image carefully. I reviewed the security footage at Sasha's. You seem different. Different demeanor, more… mellow, less noir. I have to say it's rather disappointing. I was hoping for the site to be converted into a sprawling mansion or a dingy dive bar or some such, but no, it's simply the same old place. That's unlike you. Unlike your anomaly. Are you okay? Has something changed? There's a hint of annoyance to Murphy's voice, like just the wrong buttons were being pressed. Where's the bag? Pardon? He had a body bag from here when he arrived at Sasha's. It's not here in these photographs. Why? Five gives Murphy an unconvincing smile. Well, I don't know. Things just sort of happen around here all the time. It's possible he picked it up in transit. Like a $500 image of a pixel monkey. I didn't buy it. "'Everything about her demeanor reeked of lies and deception. "'She was hiding something, but what? "'Her hands weren't made for the grip of a 44 Magnum.' "'Murphy stands from the table, adjusts his hat, and turns towards the door. "'Please, show Mr. Lawden around our facility. "'Perhaps he might be interested in our investigative department. "'I hear they're always looking for work.' You'd make a great addition, Murphy. (sighs) I'll be around. Security 2 opens the door for Murphy, and they both step out of the interview room. Security 2 escorts Murphy back down the same hall, the same array of doors and hatches passing by. She was hiding something, that much was certain. But what? What was in that bag that was so bad that it had to be hidden? Security 2 opens the door to a room labeled Site-19 Investigation Division. Inside, Murphy finds a handful of mahogany desks, the dimmed lights projecting a slight orange shade onto them. A whiteboard against the wall is filled with blue scribblings about magicians, and a pinboard next to it has the images of people's faces and names of events tacked on and wrapped together in red string a vaguely Egyptian woman in a lab coat sits hunched over one of the desks, the room's sole occupant. This is Dr. Patra, a woman whose sheer grit and determination to get everything done all the time has swamped her with work. It commends a level of admiration, but the tiredness of her face tells a less happy story. Most Foundation investigators were stuffed in someone's bucket. FORGING EVIDENCE FOR SOLVED CASES, EITHER TO PREVENT PANIC, OR TO UNSOLVE IT INDEFINITELY. HOWEVER, SHE WAS A DIFFERENT CASE ENTIRELY. MURPHY CLEARS HIS THROAT. DR. PATRA LOOKS UP AT HIM, THEN LOOKS BACK DOWN AT HER WORK. SHE LOOKS UP AGAIN SLOWLY AND JUMPS, AS IF SHE HADN'T SEEN HIM THERE THE FIRST TIME. SHE PUSHES HER SEAT BACK AND APPROACHES MURPHY. Security-2 steps around him and stands in the corner of the room. Opening a new case or checking an old one? Where's the rest of the team, miss? Doctor, Patra, please. They gave us all the day off, actually. Dismissed us all just about an hour ago, but I kinda snuck in to grab some case notes and, well... Doctor Patra looks over at her desk a single desk lamp illuminating documents and photographs tossed about in a wild mess. She gestures to it weakly. That happened. Murphy sits down at her desk. She grabs a chair from an empty desk and drags it over, still staring at some of the notes. What have you been working on? There's a hint of genuine curiosity to his voice, as if a soul finally got off the late train and took him over for a moment. Well, a myriad of things. See, there's this group of street magicians that started appearing recently. What's this? Murphy pulls a close-up photo of a canvas body bag, the words Site-19 Storage stenciled onto its side. That's a bag. What's in it? It's part of a classified investigation from higher up. I can't divulge anything without proper credentials, Mr... I'm sorry, who are you? Murphy furrows his brow, tapping the desk. He thinks for a brief moment, then looks up. Does the black moon howl? Does… oh, I see. My apologies. What was in the bag, doctor? Well, you see, we had a rather important anomaly go missing. I only got a brief overview of it myself, access restrictions being what they are, but you gave the code. We think that anomaly was stuffed in this bag and stolen by the Children of the Scarlet King. We were pretty sure they'd been wiped out, but someone stole it. Who are the suspects? I already know who'd done it, but the question was why, and why did it get him knocked? Sometimes you gotta ask the wrong questions to get the right answers." Well, frankly, we don't have any strong leads, other than it's probably someone from Scarlet King, but we've been looking into something else, and I have this hunch they're connected. Someone managed to break into the department of pataphysics about ten months ago. Funny thing is, I can't find the department anywhere. They broke in. People don't simply break in around here. Well, the name was on the entry and exit log, but There's no evidence of them appearing anywhere else in the facility or in any other documents. The only reason I think they're connected is the only other time they appear on the entry and exit log is yesterday, not long after the anomaly went missing. What even is the stolen anomaly, Doctor? They told me it was too bad, not for my eyes, just that it was extremely important to retrieve it. I assume it's not for my clearance position. Maybe you could ask someone in pataphysics. Murphy stands to leave. Oh, sir, one more thing. Eh? Good luck. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior, Site 19, Afternoon. Murphy steps out of the building and back onto the asphalt of the Site 19 parking lot. He looks across the lot at the facility next door, the words pataphysics department in big, bold lettering across its top, looming over him. I was hoping to God that I wouldn't have to come by this hellish place, but my luck didn't swing that way. It was time for me to have a chat with the people I love most, the pataphysics department. They'd almost gotten me once. Murphy put his hand around the gun at his hip they wouldn't get that close again. Murphy steps up to the department doors. The department's logo is pasted on the front glass, the words Department of Pataphysics and Warning Narrativo Hazards below it. He swipes his keycard, but the reader blinks red. He tries again, and it fails again. An intercom blows out a blast of static, as if coughing back to life. Then a stern voice comes on. Access is restricted to O5 and members of the department. Please vacate the area. Murphy looks at the small speaker above the card reader. He presses a button on it. Does the black moon howl? Where did you learn that phrase? Why don't you have a level 5 keycard but have that phrase? Hold still. Call O513. Tell her Murphy Laws at Petaphysics. I'm sorry, did you say Murphy Law? Move over, let me see the cam feed. The Foundation was already a nightmare of a company, but the way they lock things sometimes made me wonder if they were just trying to slow me down rather than keep anything contained. The door clicks and pops open. Welcome, Mr. Lawden. My apologies. A member of Site Security is on the way to let you through the vestibule and take you to my office. Murphy groans at the name, but steps through the door. A member of Pataphysics Security Team comes to greet him. She's cold, looks distant, and can never seem to look Murphy in the eyes. She wears a pair of odd goggles with green lenses. This is Security 3. Hello, Mr. Lawden. Put these on and follow me, please. Security 3 holds out a pair of goggles akin to her own. Murphy doesn't grab them, but instead looks up at her. Keep them. I won't be here long. The bursts of light from the machinery will burn your retinas if you do not wear protective eyewear. Please, put these on and follow me. Murphy begrudgingly takes the goggles and straps them on. They look awkward and out of place against his rigid, dark demeanor. They step out into a hall. The wall to their left is made entirely of glass, revealing a vast, expansive room behind it. Murphy turns his head to look through the window as they walk. A large electrical mechanical machine takes up most of the space in the room. In the back, a team of scientists in lab coats and green goggles flock around it, while an engineer screws something into an open panel on its side. The engineer closes the panel and gives a thumbs-up to the scientists. One of the scientists climbs up a ladder and climbs on top of the machine, then pulls open a hatch in the top and climbs inside. The hatch closes, and a scientist at the other end of the room pulls a lever. The machine revs like the engine of a monster truck with one too many holes in the muffler. It eventually begins glowing and screaming like a tea kettle, then finally fires off a burst of blinding white light, engulfing everything in the room and through the windows, splashing out into the hall and over Murphy. Steam rises from the machine's hatch, and the scientists clap enthusiastically. Murphy turns to look at Security 3 with a hint of rising anger to his voice. What the hell did they just do to him? Security 3 again struggles to look at Murphy their vision aimed roughly five inches too far to the left. The subject was transported up a narrative layer. She was not cooked, fried, or otherwise exposed to an open flame or uncomfortable and or lethal temperature. Security 3 looks relatively forward again. We don't know what the steam is from. Security 3 stops at the end of the hall and opens a large metal door inside is a relatively small and very sparse office it sports four gray and featureless walls with a single monitor on a wooden desk next to a couple of cabinets a pair of green goggles sit atop the desk next to the monitor in the corner by the door is a single fake potted plant there is a single occupant a man in a lab coat staring straight ahead eyesight aligned with the top of the doorframe sitting somewhat upright in a black swivel chair. His pupils are splintered into six black circles in each eye. He sits upright a bit more on noticing Murphy and Security 3 stepping into his room, and his pupils collapse into each other to form two black masses again. He's warm and understanding, if not a slight distant, all the time. This is Dr. Nara. Ah, Murphy Lawden. Apologies, I didn't see you come in. Please, have a seat. A second swivel chair appears across from the desk. Murphy sits down and takes a drag on a cigarette. Hello, doctor. Dr. Nara, although you can call me Tiv if you'd like. This place was beyond unusual. It was warped, like a record someone had carved their initials into. They say the world is always changing, but in here, nothing stayed the same. Even if I played this close to the chest, I could be looking at a handful of elevens if I didn't pay close enough attention. Actually, we do quite a good job of keeping things under control here. It could be far worse if unrestrained. Murphy squints and stares Dr. Nara in the eyes, but Dr. Nara doesn't seem to notice. Like Fred, he was reading my thoughts before I had even made them into words. Was he an anomaly? Ah, yes. Much like 423. Although whether or not we're anomalies is a topic of some debate around here. Side effect of jumping narrative layers, I'm afraid. You just… Dr. Nara looks up above Murphy, staring deeply into nothing. His pupils split apart and morph together, bending and twisting and floating about every which way. Can't stop seeing the lair you jumped to. Dr. Nara shakes his head and looks back at Murphy, pupils normal again. But anyway, enough about that. I'd like to make amends between our department and the Murphy Law Detective Agency. I realize we've been on... rocky grounds in the past, but... I assure you, Dr. Thawm is no longer under our employment. He could make all the promises he wanted, but it didn't make a minute's worth of difference to me. What Thawm did to me, you can't make up with words. Alright, fair enough. Maybe actions speak louder. What could I do for you? I'm told your security picked up some peculiarities... An unknown entry on the enter and exit log. Ah, yes. Dr. Nara pulls out one of his filing cabinets and removes a folder, the only item in the entire cabinet. He hands it over to Murphy. Someone got in through the back garage. We have a keypad lock on the garage door. Outdated, I know, but that's probably how it happened. Someone finally mentioned it ten months back, and the request to replace it with a card reader like every other door has been jammed in some bureaucratic hell since. Murphy flips open the folder and runs his fingers down the page. This person broke in ten months ago. Why do you suppose it was brought to my attention? What did they do while they were here? Well... It looked as though they rifled through some old documents and then climbed into the narrative jumper. Something shorted in the lever mechanism and it went off on its own while he was inside. Someone lost their vision for it, poor soul. I suppose that's why he isn't shown leaving. That's right. They would have been transported up a narrative lair. I'm sorry. Do you know how narrative layers work? Uh, imagine an infinite sandwich. Our narrative reality, everything we know of within the confines of this reality or otherwise, exists within a narrative spi- There's an upper layer that controls this one, and somehow we control a lower one. We don't have the time here for in-depth discussions of the narrative stack. Any idea when he returned? No clue. I was under the impression that he hadn't for a long time until someone broke in again. Again. When was this? Yesterday. I took it to the investigative team at Site 19. After that, their name wasn't on the log the first time, but yesterday they just put down their name and left. It was Norwich Bali. Weird name. Murphy flips forward through the papers to confirm and finds the name norridge bali so how a woman in a lab coat opens the metal door she begins talking to dr nara without even noticing murphy in the room this is scientist sra v7 is packed and ready to be shipped sir would you like to please i'll be at the party in a minute we have a guest here ah my apal- scientist looks over at murphy and freezes speechless she then bursts out like a fangirl. Murphy Lawden? He's back! You're here! Oh my god! Oh my god, can you sign my arm? Murphy glares at her, somewhat surprised. Please, give our guests some space. Oh, oh, of course. Just a picture? Maybe? Dr. Nara looks over at Murphy, who looks confused and shrugs. She squeaks and whips out her phone, then leans down next to Murphy and takes a selfie with him. He looks disgruntled and does his best not to touch her. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll cherish this forever. She exits the room, slamming the door behind her. Sorry, Murphy. You're something of a fan-favorite with the younger employees. Murphy rubs his eyes and sets the papers back down on the desk. How exactly did they get past the keypad lock? We don't know. It's a nine-number keypad with five numbers needed, there's 59,045 possibilities. On the cam footage, they just punch in the number and waltz in. Either they knew it from someone else, or they got real lucky, like, really, really lucky. They did it again the second time, too, even after we changed the code. Murphy stands from the desk. He takes another drag on his cigarette. I believe that's all. Of course. Let me know if you ever need anything else. Murphy grabs the door handle, then looks down in contemplation before turning around. There was a document on a stolen skip the investigative team was looking into. Do you know what it is? Do you have the file?" Oh, Murphy. Dr. Nara's pupils split apart again, bouncing about his eyes in tiny dots. I have the files for everything. Dr. Nara opens his filing cabinet and pulls out a file, the only item in the entire cabinet once again. He reaches across the desk and hands it to Murphy. You have a good day now, Mr. Lawden. Murphy winces at the name stop calling me that whatever suits you mr law whatever suits you murphy exits the building with the file still closed under his arm then unlocks his car and sits in the driver's seat he sets the file down on his lap as he closes the door then flips it open he holds up the pages his eyes scanning through them Camera zooms in on his eyes, widening slowly and growing concern until they're wider than ever. Camera then switches to zooming in on the SCP's item number, SCP-231-7. Fade out. Fade in. Exterior, former Site Director August Mansion, late afternoon. Murphy's hands grip his steering wheel with force, flooring the gas pedal and gritting his teeth. The vehicle races down the desert road. SCP-231 was a goddamn disgusting display of human cruelty. I didn't care if it was related to the investigation or not. I had to find out what procedure 110 Montauk was, at any cost. Most of the procedure itself was blotted out, trying to keep it away from my prying eyes, but I could read between the lines, and what was there was downright terrible. What kind of despicable monsters could put another human through this suffering? I may be cold towards the suffering of others, but this was something else. Something else entirely. Murphy's car screeches to a halt outside of August Mansion. The once bright, massive building now appears to be falling to decay, with vines climbing up the walls and to the rooftops. The paint on the wood is fading and chipping away, and the concrete steps up to the front door are crumbling apart. The building emits a vaguely stale smell, like a workshop filled with sawdust and cans of pure lead paint. If anyone knew what 110 Montauk was, it would be August. I'd narrowly beaten him at this game once, all that time ago, but this time I gave myself a coin flip chance. Murphy grabs hold of the 44 Magnum in the holster at his side. And this was my lucky two-headed coin. Murphy knocks on the door, but there's no answer. He slams the door knocker against the door, but there's still no answer. Murphy kicks in the door, sending the locking mechanism flying into the room. The interior is just as decrepit as the exterior. All the lights are off, the building illuminated solely by the sunlight streaming through the massive, tinted windows. Everything is covered in layers of dust of varying depth. Murphy steps through the door, gun drawn. The mansion is empty. There's not a single soul anywhere in the building. Murphy searches every room—the kitchen, the living room, the pool room, the billiards room, the basement, the wine cellar. He eventually walks up the stairs. "'August, you bastard! Come on out now!' Murphy searches through his bedroom, the bathrooms, the attic, then finally arrives at his office. He opens the door and yet again there's nobody there. The room is lined with shelves and shelves of books and a single desk in the back of the room sitting directly in the sunlight streaming through the massive window behind it. Murphy turns to leave before he notices a small stack of papers sitting atop the desk. One of the desk drawers is pulled open and a manila folder sits on the ground Murphy spins around the swivel chair at the desk and sits, then grabs the stack of papers. A step in the right direction. Little bits and pieces of 110 Montauk coming out to show themselves. The whole folder is documents from the operation. Little notes on staff movements, prisoner schedules, every time they set that poor woman's mind back a week. Notes and notes on that torture going all the way back a month. What kind of man? Murphy flips to the last page a small sheet of a larger expense report. Material costs, upkeep costs, bills. Then I found it the bit that cracked this whole thing open. A single note down at the bottom. A question mark. At the bottom of the page, next to the number for staff costs, $20.3 million, a large red question mark, and an arrow pointing to the number. Murphy turns the page over, and the back is flooded with math symbols, the handwriting getting more erratic as it goes. Finally, at the bottom. 20 million three hundred thousand minus one million fifty thousand equals Nineteen million, two hundred and fifty thousand. What was that one million? What did it mean? Find more. Find the paper trail. That's how this always goes. Murphy starts searching the room. He pulls open the other drawers in the desk, leafing through folder after folder. He turns his attention to the bookcases, running his thumb over each cover every book is covered in dust. These are all nothings. The World Encyclopedia, The Great Gatsby, The Bible. Come on, show me expense reports, record-keeping, receipts. Even a love letter from an accountant will do. Murphy's hands stopped just before a single book, named The Golden Key. Where all the other books on the shelf were covered in dust and grime and hadn't been touched in years, here there were a couple spots where you could still see the binding clearly. A mark just about the size and shape of a palm. My lucky day. Murphy pulls out the book. It doesn't come out of the case. Instead, the wall makes a clicking sound, and the book is pulled back into the shelf. Murphy steps back as the bookcase turns, opening to reveal a wooden staircase in a small, narrow corridor. A small light hangs down from the ceiling, the hall's only lighting. Murphy draws his gun again and steps down the stairs. The bookcase closes behind him and a button pops out of the wall. He turns to watch, then continues down. At the bottom of the steps is a rotting, wooden door. Murphy grabs the handle and cracks it open. Another ceiling light illuminates a wooden room lined with metal drawers and cabinets, some pulled out revealing stacks and stacks of manila folders, some dumped out on the ground like a cream-colored sea. There's a wooden desk pushed against the back wall, and a chair in the middle of the room surrounded by tons of slips and sheets of paper. Murphy gets down on his hands and knees and starts grabbing at papers, looking through each of them. Expenses, receipts, all of it laid out in a frantic search for something. By the chair in the center, Murphy grabs a stack of receipts. It wasn't the answer I was looking for, but it was the right answer anyhow. It's what all this meant. Handwriting stretches across each receipt, adding up the values. Last month's new uniforms, food, pay, equipment, morale services, etc. A red pen takes the expenses and adds them up along the side of the receipts. The total coming out to $1,050,000. 20000000 million sent to staff budget, and only $1 million of it spent. Where did the money go? What the hell did you find, August? Murphy shuffles through the piles again before pulling out a sheet of paper. It's a Site-19 accounting report. $19,050,000 sent to Site-19, the sender and the reason redacted. Red pen circles the redacteds frequently. The only info left is, to be used for, followed by the words, transfer to council funding. The purpose for that, again, redacted. And what does the O5 need that money for? Murphy digs again, at this point crumpling up papers he doesn't need and lobbing them across the dank room. Finally, he finds a memo. The words, What the Fuck, are scribbled in red ink across the top. Murphy's eyes scroll across the memo. They catch a few lines in the center. In the interest of council morale and stability, The O5 council will begin taking rotating vacation periods, with a quarter of the council taking vacation once a month until the next rotation, which occurs on the 28th of each month. Murphy scrambles back for the accounting report. His eyes again scroll down to the 19.05 million. Transfer date, the 27th. Murphy stands up, takes off his hat, and stares down at the papers in his hand. His cigarette almost falls from his mouth. They give themselves nineteen million dollars and then piss off to Kokomo. All under the guise of 110 Montauk, funding the torture of this girl to save the world. Murphy looks around the room in slight distraught before noticing something on the desk in the corner. He walks up to it and finds a tape recorder sitting on top. There's a tape sitting next to it, the label reading, Listen to Me in Red Pen. A considerable number of red pens sits strewn about the ground around the desk. Murphy places the tape in the player and hits play. This is August, former director of Site-19 for the SCP Foundation. I have to assume you work for them too if you're here listening to this. Otherwise. Well, you found something you shouldn't have, to put it plainly. Anyway, I'm sure you've seen the room. See, uh, 2004, we recovered a number of pregnant girls from a cult called the Children of the Scarlet King. Whenever one of the girls had their kid, something catastrophic happened, like a few hundred people dying, and it got worse with each one. We got down to one unborn kid before we finally worked out a method of stopping her. It was, uh, brutal. Excruciatingly so. Sickening to a lot of people. I can't overstate how awful it was. But Procedure 110 Montauk was necessary for a period. I was just a regular level four then. I hadn't been promoted to director yet. We, um... Uh, shit, what's the word? Proposed. We proposed a couple solutions over the years. There was, um... Killing the kid in the womb at first. One of the girls had it stillborn, and the event still happened, so that was out. Then we proposed dropping her down 1437 disintegrating the entire person. A cryogenic stasis. The only thing they didn't turn down was some small efficiency thing. We put forward a proposal to design a machine that attached to the body. Murphy turns away from the desk and looks out towards the open room. He pulls open a drawer of one of the filing cabinets labeled Machine Projects and flips through it. He flips past a series of folders, each labeled with the name of a different machine. v 7 Narrative Jumper, then finally, 111 Montauk. It's small, little upkeep. Most we needed was an engineer to oil it every now and again. She probably could've walked with it if, you know, she could walk. Sends a proposal to the O5s and… They turned it down, too. The whole staff was tired. Morale ran dry a long, long time ago, so they threw a mutiny of sorts. Built it anyway, hooked it up, and it worked. It even silenced her and applied the amnestics itself. Made this funny little whirring sound that still plays back in my head all the time. So we just kept on pretending to run things. Faked some documents, made it look real, like we were still doing all that unspeakable stuff to her. I put in for my retirement about, well, about ten months back. About the same time they started denying our proposals. Started going through old docs and things just for kicks after I got my retirement approval a few months later. Murphy pulls out a cabinet labeled Personal Memos and flips through it before his hands land on a document titled notice of retirement approval at the bottom it's signed noah d hr department and then i figured out why they never approved anything how long they prolonged that suffering just to launder a few million it's it's pathetic and disgusting the audio begins to sound warped and distorted as if performed by a robot. 055, 056, and 057 meet at this bar, one on 34th Street, just about every night after work, around 7 p.m. I'm gonna take what I know and confront them there, seeing as they oversee everything at 19. I don't think any of them are spearheading this, but someone's gotta say something. I just hope security will see the light when I start talking. Otherwise, well, that's just my luck, isn't it? The recording cuts out. Murphy sits in the middle of the room. Camera pulls out slowly. Fade out. So, this all started with Murphy being tasked by one of the O5s to investigate the death of O57. The plot gets thicker, though. As Murphy stumbles upon procedure 110 montauk, learning how horrible it is, before soon learning that it's all faked nowadays so that the o5s can collect millions of dollars and go on vacations. Former site director august went to confront some of the o5s about this, and seemingly hasn't been seen since. There's also the problem of a mysterious individual effortlessly breaking into foundation sites, but Murphy's going to have to take this one step at a time. Murphy Law in Skip 7043, The Montauk Falcon, will continue in Part 2, where Murphy will soon find himself as a target.